The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? Three years ago, as people across China welcomed the Year of the Rat, a new virus was taking hold in Wuhan. In London, the conversation at my family's New Year dinner was dominated by the latest updates and how many masks and hand sanitizers we'd ordered. Mercifully, Covid didn't come up at all as we welcome the Year of the Rabbit this weekend, though my family in China are still recovering from their recent infections. The zero Covid phase of the pandemic is well and truly over. So what better time to reflect on the roller coaster of the last three years? In exchange for controlling the virus, China's borders were shut for most of that time, while the economy has tanked and a generation of children have had their schooling disrupted. But after some remarkable mass protests last November, the country has opened up at a breakneck pace. The government is now keen to move on, focusing on this year's economic recovery. But can a country of 1.4 billion people move on quite so quickly? The exceptional nature of the pandemic and the collective trauma of the last three years need to be processed. And yet I wouldn't say that the Chinese Communist Party is usually good at allowing people to come to terms with historical suffering, especially when it's the party at fault. So on this episode, we'll be looking at the social legacy of the pandemic in China and how the collective memory of this exceptional time will be formed. Joining me are the Financial Times' Yuan Yang, who was the paper's deputy Beijing bureau chief during the first two years of the pandemic, and Guo Bingyang, professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania and author of The Wuhan Lockdown, a book looking at how the Wuhan people documented the world's first brush with COVID-19. So, Yuan, to start with, you've recently written about the importance of preserving China's collective memories of the pandemic to process that trauma. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, over the Christmas and New Year holidays, I was watching a lot of my friends kind of put out their annual reflections on 2022, as you do at the end of the year. And it was really interesting to see how that is quite an important process, I think, in a social sense and also in a personal psychological sense for reviewing, for learning from the past, for looking to the future. If we didn't gradate our stretches of time and it was, you know, if we didn't have years or months to lump them in, there would be kind of no natural cycle for reflection. But I think as humans, we do require those cycles of time that cause us to look backwards and to look forwards. And after watching the Chinese tech and media giant Netties, they put out a reflection of 2022, which a lot of it was these crowdsourced clips on social media showing the impacts of the lockdown, showing the kind of pain of the lockdown. And then, of course, finishing with a more optimistic ending of moments of humans helping each other out, strangers showing solidarity and so on. It was a mixture of kind of the pain and the promise of 2022 and the the new year. But it was swiftly censored, and I think that's partly because it was so raw about what happened. And the whole period made me think about how do we mark the ends of periods of crisis, not saying that this is the end, but you know, how do we mark at this stage 
the closure of one door of policy and the opening of another one, which is now the COVID wave that is going through China. And how do we take those moments as a social moment for reflection and for understanding what's coming next and also preparing ourselves for the future? I think all of that requires the ability to keep a collective history and a collective set of terms of reference that we can say, oh, you know, this is what happened back then. And also for you know, looking years or decades or even generations into the future to have some understanding of history and how people were affected during this time. Yeah, and that's, of course, a particularly complicated thing to do in China because of its political environment. But, but despite that, Guobing, your book is all about how, from the very beginning, people have sought to document, to remember, to make sense of what's going on in the pandemic, because it's all about what happened in Wuhan. Can you tell us about the urge that you came across to, to document things from, from those Wuhanese people? Well, it's really because of my reading of the lockdown diaries that appeared immediately after Wuhan was sealed off. And that's one of the really remarkable things that so many people began to share their personal stories. And they call them, you know, lockdown diaries, but uh, diaries in all kinds of uh, formats, not just traditional text forms, but also in photography, paintings, sketches, and of course, all kinds of junks, videos, right? People uh, live streamed videos about their personal lives. And I think the reason why they were doing that was uh, people immediately realized how extraordinary this lockdown was. And they wanted to preserve, to document their personal experiences as part of history. And you know, I thought as a researcher, this is something I could learn from what the residents in Wuhan were doing. I wanted to preserve as much of this as possible. And I wanted to write about it as a way of documenting that history. I was also trying to understand what this lockdown might mean by trying to look at the 2003 SARS crisis, you know, and I wasn't able to find so much material. There were some, but not as much. And so I thought I wanted to download and preserve these documents. And as a sociologist, these are extremely valuable documents for writing about the historical events. How much did technology and social media play a big role in that, Guobing? Because as you say, in 2003, there simply wasn't this primary sourcing. But now you could have so, so much of Chinese lives are lived digitally. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's the really major difference from earlier periods. You know, in earlier history, including 2003, but, you know, even earlier, before the Internet, people had ways of recording their lives, right? We, people have always been writing diaries. But the social media and really the kind of widespread use of uh, social media makes it so different. It's easier, first of all, to write, write about you know, everything, anything you wanted to. And this is many people who, you know, we as social media, we are used to trying to write, record something on a daily basis. So in that sense, it's very easy to do that. But also importantly, and this is a major difference from earlier times, when you post your diaries on social media, you get readers, you get an audience. And audience, we can talk about how audience and readers can be polarized. But a lot of the times, 
in our own social media timeline, for instance, you get a lot of encouraging comments from readers, from strangers, from people you don't know, and that's、uh, very encouraging for anyone who wanted to share their stories. So I think this made a huge difference, and as、uh, you know. When you do this over a period of seventy six days, your own diaries, your own stories, actually have also become very much a kind of a social public stories. Because if you if we compile all these diaries together with the reader comments, that's the major difference from the traditional diaries. The the big difference in the social media clips that I saw that reflected. On what happened in twenty twenty two, and the official media, for example, from CCTV, the state television mouthpiece, was how visceral social media generated clips are nowadays. The fact that you can record video and audio in a good enough quality for people to view on the small screen on their smartphones, as opposed to on TV, which requires much much greater quality, and the fact that smartphone viewing and listening has become the main mode of consumption of of media in China and across the world,、mm-hmm. it means that you can connect with people at a much more visceral level than the propaganda bodies are through the traditional kinds of propaganda methods. And so, I mean, a big comparison between, say, something like the NetEase documentary or other kinds of, as they call it, user generated content, and something like the CCTV or Xinhua roundup was just that the propaganda version was just really boring. You know, it's somebody, you know, very well trained. Uh, male voice actor reading over this this kind of forty minute voiceover、mm-hmm. of many clips of Xi Jinping and and、uh, regional officials making visits and cutting you know red ribbons and so on and that is really nothing compared to even just a five minute compilation of like twenty different fifteen second clips that have each gone viral on social media and each kind of fought their way for for attention and being shared lots of times. I think the impact of feeling like you're on the receiving end of that kind of visceral and very immediate content is to really feel like you're in the shoes of the person who's doing the filming, like you are there on the site, which is also both alluring but also sometimes quite dangerous because, of course, video content can also be heavily edited out of context and doctored and so on.、But、I think it does give the viewer a feeling of horizontal commonality. You're not. The state propaganda machine telling us the the overview, the narrative. But this is somebody on the same level as me, with a smartphone like me, who's just holding up in front of an event that's happening. I think it's also incredible how reflexive it has become to just whack out your phone. It seems whenever you meet problems with the authorities, especially during the pandemic, that people's first response is to we got to get this out there, we got to record it, and that really shows that this power they understand that they hold in their hands as well. Because you might not have a computer, but you do have a smartphone. Most people.、You And what about this knowledge of the censorship environment that's out there then? Because obviously it's always been there from the inception of the internet in China, but has it become much more obvious to people living in China over the last few years that that upper limit is there? I mean, you were there for the first two years of the pandemic. Yeah, I think what's really noticeable about the protests that erupted across China a few months ago was that there were. Normally about censorship. I mean, what people were protesting, holding up the piece of white paper, or you know, as it's now being called in China, the A4 protest, the you know, the sheets of white paper protest, is kind of mocking the state's ability to find fault with any any form of speech. And before that, before the kind of public protest, there was also a wave of people writing kind of nonsense articles that were just said. 
good, 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 and just repeated the word good or the word yes over and over again on social media. And that was partly also a mockery of the way that you know, the state censorship apparatus often picks out what is seen as negative speech or seen as you know, spreading negative sentiment or you know, news about events that make people make people feel unhappy or feel scared and censoring those. And so it's kind of creating this kind of false, false toxic positivity as a mockery of that. I think what has happened over the last few years because of the zero COVID policy and the censorship of a lot of the impacts of COVID, particularly in the, in the last 12 months, is putting people who would not usually have come into contact with the censorship apparatus, kind of throwing it in the path of censorship and seeing their posts and, and so on getting deleted in, in real time and thinking, actually, you know, we don't think that what we're spreading is political. We just think that we're informing mm. our friends or our neighbours or people about the situation that's going on. We, we find the information that we're sharing relevant to our lives and important at a time of such great uncertainty. And let's face it, a lot of vaccine hesitancy and also uncertainty about medical questions and how to treat this kind of ongoing crisis in China. So I think that was a time when people needed a lot more content than they actually than what was being given officially and also not really trusting official sources and coming into confrontation with the censorship machine. Mm. Gobin, this this obsession with positive energy, which um, the government is very obsessed with, is something that you tackle in your book. And also, of course, you know, this idea that people who put things out on social media aren't necessarily being political. They're just recording their daily lives. And that's been seen by a political unit as sensitive, which sensitizes it, really. <laughs> what do you think about how the state has handled these? Should it have let people air their grievances in a much more kind of objective way and not reacted so sensitively? I think this is, uh, uh, in some ways, letting people vent their anger right uh, online can be useful as a mechanism of uh, containment, uh, right? Mm. Uh, of channeling people's anger because you have to have some way of channeling people's anger. So that's why I, I think sometimes we often feel that the censorship is very unpredictable. Sometimes it censures very harsh measures. Sometimes things seems to be just uh, circulating very fast, right? And this happens again, both during Wuhan and recently, right? When a particularly influential popular posting of photo or video sensor, people started doing relays to keep posting them. And, and that helps to keep the postings still alive for a long time. So I think it's very hard to say that, that there's no clear, strict rules. There's, it's always on both parts, on government authorities and internet users, there's some flexibility, you know, internet users, there are a lot of flexibility and uh, creativity. It's worth noting as well that the censorship apparatus is not a unified apparatus and doesn't have a strong central command and control. There are, of course, the ministries that regulate the media, the commercial media in China, who will issue these directives to not report on certain issues or, report, or to report on them in a certain way. And those kinds of centrally issued directives are often catalogued by the China Digital Times, and you can see many of them online catalogued on the China Digital Times website. But apart from those central directives, which I think amount for the very small kind of tip of the iceberg of the whole censorship actions that get taken, a lot of it is dispersed through the tech giants that regulate online content. There are thousands, if not you know, tens of thousands of employees at Tencent, the internet company that owns WeChat, which is the biggest social media platform 
the kind of all-in-one kind of Facebook WhatsApp of of China, and there are you know hundreds of thousands more employees of the many other short video and audio and so on platforms that take it into their own hands to catch. Um, potentially sensitive viral moments before they occur, and if you consider the amount and rate of user-generated content being uploaded onto all of the servers of all of these giants any given day, yes, they'll have automatic filters that are algorithmic and will catch out words like you know Tiananmen Square or or Liu Si six six four the 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 fourth of June anniversary of that event. But there'll be lots of new developing words and bundles of words that these algorithmic、uh, filters don't catch, and it's really down to the kind of judgment. Sometimes it might be of you know a a low-paid internet censor hire in their early twenties who's just landed into this job straight out of college or university, and they have to figure out you know do we. Block this content? Do we soft block it so it looks like it's not blocked, but the user doesn't know it's being blocked? Do we close comments under this thread? What do we do? And some, I think, some of those decisions can actually be quite kind of、uh, random, and sometimes they also amplify or try to preempt. The direction of the central government in a way that exaggerates actually what certain policymakers would have wanted. It also creates this really interesting effect that when, for example, the comments are closed under a company that's become sensitive or under a topic that's become sensitive, other netizens use that as reason to know that this is a big issue now. It's almost like the equivalent of saying, "Oh, this must be a big." News topic because you know the BBC has reported on it in China. It's, it's like this must be a big topic because the comments are closed under this thread, and so it also becomes this quite you know self defeating magnet for attention. On you know why is it the case that we can't post under Balenciaga anymore? Oh, it's because there was a young man wearing Balenciaga who who was standing on a police car and you know on New Year's Eve. I wouldn't have known that if you know if this had not drawn attention to it. So, so we are, as Gwen mentioned, in this quite uneasy period of almost a lot of decisions that the state censorship apparatus and its many dispersed and delegated arms make can be quite self-defeating, and yet the whole system is still an integral system of the Communist Party's governance of China.、Mm. Yuan, the other thing I wanted to touch on when it comes to technology and the government is digital surveillance that we saw during the pandemic. The idea of, for example, the health code, which tracked your location across the country in order to Give you color-coded access to various public spheres and elsewhere. Some commentators have said that this is the kind of digital infrastructure that, once brought in, will be very hard to roll back, and it will be co-opted to other methods or other goals after the pandemic is over. But we have already seen that the national health code has been rolled back. What is your personal take on how long-lasting will these digital surveillance methods be? Mm, this is a really good question because certainly, as、yeah, somebody who lived in China for the six years up until the middle of the pandemic, I returned to the UK last last year in twenty twenty two. It felt that we could be entering a moment where the health code mini app, which you had to use to scan to get on a train, to go into a supermarket, even to go into your own office, sometimes would become a really total and encompassing part of surveillance in China. And certainly for the for the last few years of COVID, it has been used many times on foreign journalists, including myself, to surveil us and to also almost serve as an excuse to come along and inspect what you're doing. So there've been you know times when you've done reporting outside of the main.、Uh, I've done reporting outside the main capital. I've heard the story from many of the foreign correspondents as well. The Foreign Correspondents Club of China catalogs these kinds of incidents in its annual report. And officials would rock up and say, "You know, we're here to check your COVID status," but they were actually there to ask you about who you're planning to interview and what you're planning to write about, and also to chase chase you out 
of their locality if needs be. Now that seems to have just kind of vanished overnight. And I suppose one of the positive or one of the lucky things about that apparatus was it's not an additional technological apparatus on top of what already exists. So if you consider, for example, the installation of temperature sensors, which many offices and shopping malls have done, you could consider that, that is an extension of their te technological ability to surveil people because they previously were not able to record that kind of information and see heat maps of, of people going in. Now they can. You might consider that in some ways a kind of benign extension or a kind of minor extension of surveillance. But to contrast that with the HealthKit app, which is extremely invasive in terms of tracking and keeping log of your location very frequently over as uh, wherever you're carrying your phone and uploading that onto a centralized database that is an invasive but also kind of more ephemeral function because it's also the default function that WeChat and many other apps that you give location services access to on your phone already have it's the kind of access that the state-owned carriers have and that they could deploy if they were wanted to use that capacity more systematically. So it's more of a systematization of existing surveillance capacity as opposed to the kind of extension of capacity. I think what happens to it in, in the future really depends on how much users are willing to, to share their data with, with the apps that they're using on their phone and how much they're willing to be checked at the human level by security cards when they go into a building, as, as used to be the case throughout, throughout COVID. Yeah, just to add one, one point, I, you know, I totally agree with Yuan's. Uh, I think one thing about uh, our digital society is everywhere, a digital society is a society of surveillance. You know, as long as we use our phone, we carry around, we are under surveillance of one kind or another. One difference, I think, uh, if we think about China, Chinese digital media users, and here, let's say, in Philadelphia, there's, there's so much resistance, opposition to surveillance uh, here, right? Even the installation of surveillance cameras in public spaces they always get a lot of strong opposition, but in China, it's much less so. People even applaud, for instance, when in recent years, universities began to install face detection cameras, right? As just scan, you, you get into campus, people, people are excited about these uh, te new technologies and not really that much worried, at least in op opposition to this kind of surveillance technologies. I think that's very interesting thing about uh, people's approaches to these technologies. I would also say, you know, when, when we talk to individual users, people have, especially young people, have their own very smart ways of managing access, right? When they want to close this kind of notification, when, what kind of app to use. They have very personalized but smart approaches. It's not that people are not aware of the risks of surveillance. They have their own individual and savvy ways of managing this kind of risks. Mm. That's just one, one quick point to add. Yes, the kind of broad acceptance of surveillance and seeing it in the frame of surveillance for security's sake, for protection, is quite a dominant narrative in China. But there have also been major instances of kind of uh, lashback at, at certain forms of surveillance. So, for example, in the late 2010s, there was a big kind of backlash by, by parents of a secondary and primary school children against the expansion of emotion surveillance into classrooms, which 
initially was hailed as this kind of whole, this will be great at helping teachers keep tabs on our kids and understand what, whether they're misbehaving or not. And then you know, quite quickly, it seems that the promise of that technology, well, one, fails to deliver on its promises and actually fails to prove to be efficient actually even the things it claims to do and secondly that parents and kids really hated this kind of intrusion that they saw into you know, into the lives of minors and were asking well isn't this actually the work that the teachers should be doing themselves in classroom management as opposed to kind of outsourcing to this technology that we don't understand the the impact of and um, Shazida mm-hmm. Ahmed at AI Now has written extensively about facial recognition and emotion recognition and debates in China. So that's kind of one example. And, I, and there have been quite new, but interesting, very interesting kind of law case, lawsuits developing in China over the use of facial recognition at places like public parks and so on. Yeah, that's actually something that we looked at on the podcast a while ago now about the kind of civil backlash to facial recognition with people kind of wearing helmets in order to prevent their faces from recognised and all sorts of ways, um, legal and um, private, to fight against that. But uh, Gorbin, the point that you make about how some of the population actually are co-opted or agree with control measures, I think it's really interesting to bring out because I think so often in the Western reporting, what it misses out on is that the Western reporting seems to think that zero COVID is a top-down approach, that the relationship between the state and the person is one-directional. But actually, I think what we've seen really is much more complicated than that. It's community volunteers, it's your neighbours, it's people not necessarily controlling your behaviour because they're an instrument of the state, but because they're concerned about public health. You know, can you talk a little bit about how complicated that web really is? Because it's not just the state giving orders and the people being oppressed. It's actually, you know, there's there's some feedback there. Yeah, I think that's really interesting dynamic when we come to think about Chinese politics and society in general. You know, political scientists have long proposed various kind of concepts to understand the different aspects of authoritarianism, one of which the first, I think, is Professor Andrew Nathan's concept of resilient authoritarianism, by which he means that the regime is resilient in several ways, and one of which is that it tries to institutionalize certain channels of citizen input, including you know, a uh, public uh, protest, uh, you know, citizen uh, protest in various channels. That's a way, one way authorities can understand what's happening, what people are thinking about. Even though they punish them for participating, <laughs> they, they're still listening. That's, yeah. that's very well put. Uh, they're still listening. And I think we see this uh, also in the recent response to the uh, zero COVID protest. So the idea of resilient or responsive authoritarianism, I think, is helpful in understanding how the authorities work. That it's not just, uh, I have a policy, you know, it's often, of course, we want to implement a policy, but if the policy doesn't work well and citizens respond very differently, radically, they will adjust their policies, they will make changes. But it also depends on how citizens behave. And and I really wanted to emphasize that a responsive authoritarianism depends on responsive, active uh, citizens. And one remarkable thing about uh, Chinese citizen activism, this is something I've been studying for a long time, my main focus of work, is that even if you think about very different social or political contexts, citizens have always found ways of 
uh, voicing their concerns one way or another, sometimes more active, more direct than other times. But there's always some way that they will act in some way to respond. So I call this active citizenship, which is important part of that dynamics that uh, in that sense, that's why I think we always see a lot of back and forth between government authorities and citizens. And there is a kind of mutual learning, I would think, that authorities will learn from citizens and citizens will learn about what are the most effective ways of voicing their concerns and protesting. Mm. And on that complicated relationship with the state, I think the biggest or the best example I can think of to think about this is the the Dabai, the hazmat-suited workers who in the Western media is often reported as police or state officials, local officials. Of course, sometimes they were. Sometimes they, they were migrant workers brought in to help with security. Sometimes they were local community volunteers, your neighbours, and not necessarily instruments of state violence, although they did act in a certain role, but actually just um, everyday citizens as well. I mean, Yuan, what do you think about this? What did you think of how the Chinese people around you made of their relationship with state power? Well, I think this is a really fascinating point and also kind of shows again how it's much more complicated than there being a state monolith and then there being people underneath in this kind of like two-level hierarchy. Because as you say, the hazmat-suited workers, many of them were migrant workers working for very little amounts of pay without medical insurance, ironically enough. And there have been also reports of kind of mass layoffs of those people, of course, now that the zero COVID policy has passed. When I was in Beijing at the start of COVID, I remember the orders coming down from the central government filtering down to the regional government are very vague in general. They give the local government responsibility for controlling outbreaks, but they don't say exactly how they're going to do it. And in that sense, it's governance in China is very, very different from governance in the UK. In the UK, as a councillor on a local borough or on if you're the officer of a region, you don't have to make up rules about you know when can people go outside and when do they stay at home and what kinds of things can they do, because those things are actually set at a central level to quite a high degree of specificity. And it means that there is a letter of the law and there's a rule and you can say this is the rule and you kind of hold it up and know that that's the same rule that's being applied to your neighbours. Now in China, rule setting can be very, very vague. It can just be as simple as we want to tighten controls over over COVID and limit infections. And then what is done in the name of that really becomes kind of improvised and reinterpreted and again, sometimes over or under-exaggerated at the local level. So I could really feel you know, in back in February of 2020, this kind of shift happening across my residential compound and the compounds where my friends were living in. Now, bearing in mind that most people in, in the big cities in China live in these kinds of encircled and walled compounds where you have like a block of high rises together with one or a few entrances and with security guards and a property manager. The property manager now became not just somebody who managed the kind of utilities and rent, but also somebody who is responsible for an unfolding health crisis, which is really not, of course, what you're, what you sign up for as when you go into the real estate business. And suddenly they were, they found that they they were on the line. Their reputations, their ability to do business were on the line, depending on how they managed the lockdown. And then the security guards who were then given the day to day management of the situation. Sometimes I'd have conversations with them when I left or enter the compound or try to bring a friend in or did, you know whatever, when there was no clear rule and the security guard would say, look, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I, I know that these rules are really strict, but it's my career that's on the line. I don't want to have to 
know, if there's an infection that's compound tomorrow, the property manager will trace who was on duty. They'll say that it's me and then I'm going to get fired. So do you really want to you know, push the boundaries of this? And so you can see how there is that cautious thinking on the individual level because the rules are not clear. So if there had been a clear rule, which was like mm. all of Beijing can either do X or Y, you can have visitors between these hours or whatever, there would be no like, kind of room for interpretation and no need for these kinds of conversations of everyday kind of pressure. And certainly it would sometimes come down to who was on duty, even in the lockdown compounds in Shanghai that suffered extremely intense lockdowns in April of last year. Some of my friends there would say, it depends on who's on duty. In the morning, you can go and get groceries. But in the afternoon, if Mr. Wang's on duty, you've no chance, you know. But, but Mr. Zhang, he's much, he's much more lax and he'll be, you know, he'll be much more humane about things. And a lot of this comes down to how much is gray space in an area actually of quite a lot of, uh, let's say, kind of soft implementation and not, no clear boundaries and rules. Yeah, it's interesting the way that that security guard motivated you through kind of appealing to your your sympathy or your empathy for him. You know, this kind of people to people links that make people follow the rules rather than because of any obligation to your state. It's because of your obligation to your fellow citizens. Sorry, Guobing, you were going to say. Yeah, I was just going to say that really love Yuan's examples. I think they really show very well that uh, on a daily basis, really, citizens and government officials, bureaucrats are negotiating about how to do things. <laughs> But these kind of negotiations do not really necessarily happen as between a citizenship and, and the government that are opposed to each other. The relationship is not a positional. I think the vast majority of citizens think of themselves as part of the system. They want to be part of the system. They want jobs in the system. But then they also understand that rules, there is always room for negotiation and they will be they're very good at negotiation like the examples that Yuan gave. Yeah, and I think it's important to say, in case any listeners are thinking that we're excusing the system or saying that everyone is in support of the system, it certainly is not, that's not the case. But for a system like China, I think for the kind of authoritarianism it practices to be so resilient over the last few decades is because there is this complex web. The, the, the story is not so simple as just a top-down oppression because that would not be nearly as resilient as we have seen now. And Yuan, I want to take us back to this question of memory that we started with. Some commentators have compared the last few years of trauma to previous episodes of trauma, like the Great Leap Forward famine or the Cultural Revolution. For example, when we're talking about documentation of these years, I wonder if... It brings to mind the scar literature that came in the 1980s as a genre to remember the Cultural Revolution and to process it. How fair do you think that or helpful do you think that comparison is of zero COVID? I mean, even though the death toll is not comparable to those episodes that I've mentioned, how fair do you think that comparison is? Yeah, I think, as you say, it's important to think about the scale of deaths. So there have been projections of around a million deaths or more in China in the current wave of, of Omicron. In the Cultural Revolution, again, a lot of this has to be estimates because there was no clear and accepted history at the time. But in the 10 years from uh, 66 to 1976, around 6 million or more deaths, many more people than that have hounded and harassed and injured and so on. The Great Leap Forward, many times more deaths actually than that as well. So in terms of how long a period of history this current zero COVID policy has lasted for and the deaths, both because of the current COVID wave and also because of deaths due to other preventable issues, for example, people having lacking chemotherapy or other medical treatment during lockdown, if you divide up those into kind of preventable deaths caused by zero COVID and then the kind of deaths caused by the relaxation of the policy, 
it's still on a very different kind of scale. I think the reason why people are making those comparisons back to those moments is because those were moments that also changed the political understanding and self-understanding of a whole generation of people in a way that's really quite far-reaching. And I think that what's really notable about the recent wave of white paper protests in China against zero COVID policy was that a lot of the post-90s and post-millennial Gen Z young people who had missed on the Tiananmen, missed out on the Tiananmen massacre because they would have been born afterwards, they would have been too young at the time, have for the first time experienced a kind of collective trauma, have experienced for the first time the kind of collective upsurge of political protests that happens when people feel extremely angry uh, across the nation at such a moment of history. And I think that is really, really important because previously you could understand the, the kind of post-90s generation in China as the have it all generation, being born at a time of prosperity, growing up in childhood and entering university at a time of huge expansion in the labor market for young professionals through the tech boom, reaping the benefits of, of China's market entry to the WTO and so on. Now I think the that post-90s generation in adulthood is also seeing the the problems of rising inequality and stiffening social mobility and also of the impact of the sluggish labour market of the last few years of the pandemic, feeling very out of control of their own lives. And that's even more so for for the post kind of zeros generation, those born after 2000 who are entering the labour market in the last few years. And let's bear in mind, even the official youth unemployment numbers are at 20%. And that's, you know, those are the official numbers. And so you might wonder what the real numbers are even above that, particularly in different hotspots, bearing in mind that China's very geographically heterogeneous, a lot of that 20% will be concentrated in areas where almost everyone is unemployed. Yeah, yeah. just again, to think about the memories of COVID pandemic in comparison with earlier major historical events like the Cultural Revolution, Great Leap Forward. I think these are very compelling, tough questions. But I'm reminded of a wonderful book by uh, Li Jie. The book is called uh, Utopian Ruins. And one of her arguments is a study really of collective memories of the Mao period. One of her arguments is what she calls a crisis of witnessing. Because the state had such tight control, monopoly over media, any kinds of media, you know, during the Mao period, Great Leap Forward, for instance, she, she argues in her chapter on the Great Leap Forward, there was very little documentation from the grassroots side, right? Even photography and very little documentation of that kind of historical catastrophic events because of state monopoly of, of media, all kinds of media. Mm. So we can, we can ask the question, is there a similar crisis of witnessing when it comes to COVID-19 pandemic? I think very much less so because of what we earlier talked about, the prevalence of digital media, social media, makes it possible for regular people to document and share the stories. It does not mean that the state does not try to control the narrative of the media or the media, but it does mean that people have uh, access to all kinds of media nowadays. Some of these are transnational, right? Uh, and therefore, I think in terms of witnessing, 
and documenting history, we are now in a very different world. That will be really interesting to see that the kind of medium and long term impact of that. Yuan, do you think that there will be some kind of reckoning for the government that people who lived through the last few years, which you know, do you think for them they will blame the government? Because, as Gorbin says, there is so much documentation in an unprecedented level, and it was a crisis that, in a way, affected everyone. In in a way that Cultural Revolution, maybe you know, Beijing was particularly affected, or the Great Leap Forward. If you were in the cities, you might not have seen what was going on in the countryside. But this really was affecting most people. Do you think are we starting to see people? Turning back and looking over the last three years and thinking we did not have to do that, or at least we did not have to do the last year or so of lockdowns. I think certainly. I mean, personally, my own friendship circle of some of my friends who have been the most kind of let's say generally apolitical over the last year. I think it's become impossible to be apolitical, and they have started to voice kind of criticism and anger and frustration and all of these emotions that you have when you're going through in a very intense lockdown at the mercy of a system that doesn't ever seek to explain itself to you. I think are very natural instincts that you get when something terrible is being done to you for no for no clear reason. What happens to that awareness and knowledge is a complete other question. And bearing in mind if you think about kind of like Maslow in hierarchy of needs coming out of the lockdown, people are now kind of scrambling onto the next thing. It's can I secure healthcare for my grandparents? Can I make sure that we have you know enough medicine, fever medicine at home if my two-year-old gets a fever and all the hospitals are out of stock and we can't get them treatment? Can we make sure that our neighbors are okay? So I think the next stage after the zero COVID policy was lifted is really kind of let's ensure the basic necessities. And I think after that, there'll be also a period of how do we get back to an, a more kind of normal economic life? How do we find jobs again after the lockdowns are lifted? Do we now that we can move cities? Now that we can move from the countryside to the cities, do we go look for factory work again? You know, I think all of these questions of just kind of ensuring the basics are going to be preoccupying the vast majority of Chinese people for the next few months, rather than questions of、mm. you know what what do we do about the the system that has done this. Although I'm sure、mm. that there are people thinking about that question as well, I also want to return to Gorbin's point, if, if I may, about this crisis of witnessing. I agree that, especially compared to previous historical traumas, that this one has been deeply witnessed and deeply recorded. It also just struck me to wonder, kind of, what voices are missing from the even the kind of citizen-documented narratives on social media. One of the clips in the NetEase roundup of the year was of it had the audio of somebody's elderly relative. I don't know if they were in their seventies or eighties, kind of crying on the phone to their younger, I think, son or grandson, because during lockdown, so much of life became intermediated by the smartphone. You had to order your groceries on the smartphone. You had to speak to your neighbours on the smartphone, etc. And this poor elderly gentleman couldn't figure out how to do all that, and he was just kind of breaking down and saying, "You know, it's over for me. I can't handle modern life. I don't know how to. I don't know how to work this, basically." And I can imagine that that's kind of the voice of those who are, of whatever reason, un- unable to use smartphones and uncomfortable with with them.、And、I think that's a very interesting voice that. That is lacking from the documentation, and the second category I thought of was a lot of you. Know, we 
tend to report on China in the Mandarin language, the standardized language of Beijing. But of course, there are many different groups and many of them split along ethnic minority classifications using many different languages and dialects in China. And there's been quite a dearth of reporting, I would say, in general, from Tibet and Tibetan-speaking regions mm-hmm. in Western China. And also, when I say reporting, I mean also not just the kind of international media coverage, but also the kinds of things that would go viral on domestic social media in China. And apart from the Arumqi fire, which, of course, sparked the protests and brought a lot of attention to the Xinjiang lockdowns, I think you know, during the lockdowns in Xinjiang, which were some of the longest and deepest lockdowns and ha- most harshest implementation across China, I think they were generally underheard on Chinese social media compared to, yeah. say, lockdown in, in Shanghai or, or other Chinese Han-dominant uh, and Mandarin-speaking cities. So those are two areas that I think would be interesting to try and fill, if, if we were to kind of actively try to find resources and information to kind of fill in the gaps. I totally agree. And Gorbing, you know, we're fast running out of time. So I wanted to, you know, look ahead and just think about what lasting impact the last three years will have had on Chinese society. I mean, one thing that I think about is whether or not there's a crisis in trusting expertise. So what was interesting was that at the beginning of the pandemic, state epidemiologists like John Nanshan were always worshipped for their calmness, for, for, for giving information. And yet, when zero COVID ended in December, I saw a fair amount on social media that says, I've had enough of experts. I wonder how long-lasting you think that trust deficit could be. Well, this is a difficult, important, but difficult question to talk about now because I think it's still early. I think definitely there'll be profound changes in society, the profound changes in the world, societies around the world. In China, I think the point you mentioned is very important. The relationship of citizens with other institutional actors, in this case, experts, could be significantly impacted. But I was also thinking, again, about the relationship between citizens and government and how that might change. Because we know that citizens in general, and this is the Chinese political culture, because the government presumes to be taking charge of everything. Of course, citizens tend to become dependent on bureaucracies, governments for for everything, right? Mm. From medical care to grocery shopping. And they have witnessed how things have been happening outside of the country, but then through their own experience, they have also come to realize that at critical moments, they need to organize and rely on themselves to manage critical situations. Uh, I think at least among some of these people, this will be a significant impact in terms of their understanding of their relationship with government, uh, with the government you know, bureaucracies. How wide this might be, you know, in terms of the ramifications across society. Again, that's hard to say, because I think the political culture is very strong. That the government, you know, very deliberately, conscientiously try to cultivate this culture where citizens, you know, we we take care of everything. <laughs> but that's that's why also the you know citizens will protest. Will anything small, or big will protest at government authorities because that's what you say you're responsible for, right? Well, yeah. If you don't let people to go out by by their own shopping, then if you can't feed them in time, then that is your fault. Exactly. Exactly. That's <laughs> that's the source of a lot of the protests, both yeah. in Wuhan 
and in Shanghai and recently, right? Hmm. Guobing and Yuan, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. And if you like what we do here, you might be interested in the Chinese Whispers newsletter that I will be launching in the near future. Sign up for free at spectator.co.uk/whispers, and you'll be getting regular updates from me on the most interesting political and cultural news from China, as well as, of course, a smattering of history. That's spectator.co.uk/whispers. Forward slash